Hello and welcome to the C.S. Lewis Festival Scholar Series. I'm your host, David Krause. The C.S. Lewis Festival, of which I am co-founder, is held each September along the shores of Lake Michigan in beautiful Petoskey, Michigan. Over 22,000 have attended this unique and unprecedented collaboration between the arts, educational, and faith communities of Northwest Michigan with the sole intent of celebrating the life and times of C.S. Lewis. Nearly all of the events are free and open to the public. The 2022 festival, which is our 20th season, takes place the weekend of September 16th with the keynote address by best-selling author Ann Voskamp. You can learn more and how to attend the festival at cslewisfestival.org. That's cslewisfestival.org. The 2015 C.S. Lewis Festival theme was C.S. Lewis and War, and that is the basis of Episode 1. In this series of talks, three leading writers and scholars delve deeply into the subject of war and Lewis, specifically World War I. Lewis was a veteran and suffered injuries. The war also had a profound impact on his life and ultimately his faith. The first talk is by Dr. Joseph Lacanti, Senior Fellow in Christianity and Culture at King's College in New York City and Director of the Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. He is also a highly respected speaker and author, and he based his talk on his book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. This book is now the basis of a documentary series currently in production. Dr. Lacanti postulates, had there been no great war, there would have been no Hobbit, no Lord of the Rings, no Narnia, and perhaps no conversion to Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And now, Dr. Joseph Lacanti. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you guys this morning, and I'm gonna, my remarks are going to be brief, you know, maybe 15 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes tops. Uh, I, I believe that probably the best... The best talks and especially the best sermons can be improved by being cut in half. So I've already done the cutting. So let's get into it. Uh, 7.30 a.m. July 1st, 1916, to the sound of whistles, drums, and bagpipes, nearly 100,000 British troops climb out of their trenches and attack along a 14-mile front in northern France. They are confident of victory, uh, even exuberant. It is the first day of the Battle of the Somme. What they do not know is that a week of intense artillery fire has not penetrated most of the German dugouts or destroyed the wire, the barbed wire, or knocked out the German heavy artillery. What they do not suspect is that they are, in the words of one historian, plodding forward across a featureless landscape to their own extermination. Hundreds of German field guns and howitzers, those are the heavy cannons, are turned on the advancing British troops with devastating effect. When we started to fire, we just had to load and reload, said a German machine gunner. They went down in their hundreds. We didn't have to aim. We just fired into them. Well, before the sun set over the gray banks of the River Somme, 
19,420 British soldiers, Lloyd George called them the choicest and best of our young manhood, lay dead. Most were killed in the first hour of the attack, many within the first minutes. Another 40,000 or more were wounded. And so July 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme marks the deadliest single day in British military history. And that's a lot of military history. Listen to Martin Gilbert, who wrote a book on that battle, the Somme. The agony of war took its toll on the Somme in full measure. The heroism and horror of war were seen there without disguise, unembellished and unadorned. And to what end? Winston Churchill, who was on the front lines in 1916 as a lieutenant colonel, saw, quote, a welter of slaughter from beginning to end. No strategic advantage of any kind had been gained. One commanding officer reported stoically, it was a magnificent display of trained and disciplined valor, and its assault only failed of success because dead men can advance no further. Well, no wonder the First World War is credited with destroying the modern idea of heroism. The industrialized slaughter of the Great War created many cynics and pacifists in the years after the peace was finally established. For them, there could be nothing heroic about modern warfare. That became kind of a, an internal maxim. Nothing heroic about modern warfare. And yet, as veterans of this conflict, Lewis and Tolkien, they chose to remember not only its horrors and its sorrows, as we talked about last night, they wanted to recall the courage, the sacrifice, the friendships that made it endurable. Well, how did they do it? By retrieving that medieval concept of the heroic quest and reinventing it for the modern mind, by re-enchanting our moral imagination, yes, our moral imagination, to the genre of myth and romance. And I think this is the signal achievement of their work. Lewis and Tolkien both found in medieval literature a set of motifs and ideals worthy of preservation. More than that, they believed that the heroic tradition offered a tonic, yes, a tonic for the moral and spiritual malaise of the modern age. Biographer John Garth, his judgment of Tolkien applies to Lewis as well. He did not simply preserve those traditions that the war threatened, the heroic tradition, but reinvigorated them for our own era. And if you think about it, each of the installments of the Chronicles of Narnia is awash in these traditions, right? Narnia is this realm of kings and queens where a code of honor holds sway, where knighthood is won or lost on the field of battle. This is the greatest shame and sorrow that could have fallen on us, says the prince in the silver chair. We have sent a brave lady into the hands of enemies and stayed behind in safety. Well, the heroes of these stories, whether they take the form of princes or mice or marsh wiggles, they are imbued with the medieval ideals of sacrifice and chivalry. Sire, my life is ever at your command, pledges Reapy Cheap in Prince Caspian, but my honor is my own. Modern liberalism. Modern liberalism had come to regard the chivalrous sentiment, a sentiment as the false glamour of war. That's medieval stuff. That's the false glamour of war, according to our liberal friends. Even before the Enlightenment, there in the 18th century, many Europeans and Americans 
had come to despise all of the values associated with the medieval world. The forces of democracy, of secularism, of feminism would discard those values altogether. Well, in the aftermath of the First World War, there was deep cynicism, as we spoke last night, about the, quote, moralistic idealism, the moralistic idealism that created the slaughterhouse of the Western Front. And so no wonder critics accused Lewis and Tolkien both of forming a, quote, cultural rearguard of the Middle Ages. That was the accusation. You guys are trying to bring the Middle Ages back uh, into the present day. Uh, Lee Rossi is one of the authors I think who makes this accusation. They exhibit a tremendous nostalgia for the political stability and the cultural cohesion of the Middle Ages. Well, I think I have to disagree with Mr. Rossi. Neither Lewis nor Tolkien sought a return to the political or the social ideals of Christendom, but they do, they do see the medieval tradition of valor and chivalry as both practical and vital practical and vital. Listen to Lewis, this chivalrous tradition. It taught humility and forbearance to the great warrior, he writes, because everyone knew by experience how much he usually needed that lesson, the warrior who needs restraint, chivalrous restraint. And so the noblest characters in Lewis's stories, they show great gentleness and restraint as well as fierceness and martial Vigor. The heroes of Narnia and Middle-earth do not shrink from the sight of hacked-off limbs, smashed uh, skulls, right? But they're also men and women of great modesty and compassion. And I think the intended effect of these characters is to retrieve these medieval virtues and to try to make them attractive in the modern setting, to reinvigorate our moral imagination. Now, why does this matter to us today? What's the point of it today? I always ask this question to my students when we're doing uh, Western civilization. It's kind of a so what question. So what? Why does it matter? Because I don't think there's much room in modern liberalism or in progressive Christianity for the heroic tradition. I don't think they make much room for it. And I think that's a problem. The martial virtue so important to modern democracies in a dangerous world are either misunderstood or rejected altogether. Let me say that again. The martial virtues so important to modern democracies now, in this place, at this time, are either misunderstood or rejected altogether. We find either what? Violence for its own sake or the complete repudiation of this martial outlook in the face of great evil. Consider the reaction of leading progressive Christian ministers and thinkers to the rise of radical Islamic extremism. And I'm gonna to have to name names here because they've said a lot about it, written a lot about it. And our speaker here earlier in the week, Reverend Tony Campolo, you know, I have to like Tony Campolo at a huge level. He's an Italian from Philadelphia. <laughs> I mean, that's not bad right there. And so I like uh, Campolo personally, but I don't like the way his thinking goes on some of these questions. And I, what I'm gonna say now, I would say if, if uh, Tony Campolo was right here in the room, so. Uh, Tony Campolo compares, and you can read his website and his writings on this, he compares any U.S. military action against the Islamic State to the campaign of beheadings launched by ISIS against alleged infidels. He equates the two. They roughly would be the same. If we do anything against ISIS, that's really no morally different than what ISIS is doing 
to these innocents. That's from Mr. Campolo. And then he asks this question. What can we do to stop this cycle of violence? He asks. Here's his answer. What if President Bush and President Obama stood together at the rostrum of the UN General Assembly and did the biblical thing, according to Mr. Campolo, the biblical thing? What if on behalf of the American people, they, re they repented of what our nation has done? Well, I'm not sure what C.S. Lewis would say about national repentance. I mean, he's pretty dubious about that whole concept. Uh, but I think there's a profound intellectual confusion uh, here in this outlook from Mr. Campolo. Religious progressives are not mistaken when they discover in the ministry of Jesus a life devoted to love of neighbor. Of course we see that in Jesus, the unconditional love of God. And they are not wrong. They're not mistaken to see in Jesus the quintessential peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. Of course he's that. And yet they reject, it seems to me, the heroic tradition because their vision is based entirely upon the principle of nonviolence, nonviolence. Their political and social ethics are guided by one rule, it seems, and one rule only, the law of love, as they see it, the law of love. Now, the fatal problem with this view, as I read C.S. Lewis, is that historic Christianity has never reduced the gospel to these elements, never. The heroic tradition grounded in the biblical story of creation, fall, and redemption assumes that individuals will violate the law of love. It assumes that. It assumes the existence of radical evil. Radical evil. In Narnia, <laughs> evil, of course, is embodied in the white witch. And witches, according to Lewis, are not interested in things or people unless they can use them. And he's talking, of course, about the will to power, the will to power. The epic hero, the epic hero stands in the way of the will to power. According to Lewis, the heroic tradition rejects equally the moods of militarism and pacifism. Throughout Narnia, throughout the, Sp the Space Trilogy, Lewis charts this middle course, I think, a partial return, not a full return, but a partial return to the chivalrous ideal, the noble knight fighting for a just cause. Only a society that upholds this ideal in its art, in its literature, in its theology, in its institutions, only a society like that, I believe, can hope to resist the dark and hungry forces arrayed against it. Lewis's heroic vision was not escapism, he argued but the only realistic path available in a dangerous world. As Lewis explained, the heroic tradition, quote, offers the only possible escape from a world divided between wolves who do not understand and sheep who cannot defend the things which make life desirable. Sheep, sheep cannot defend the things that make life desirable. They cannot protect the innocent from radical evil. This is one of the strongest narratives in Lewis's fiction. Give the password, said the chief soldier. This is my password, said the king as he drew his sword. The light is dawning. The lie is broken. Now guard thee, miscreant, for I am Tyrion of Narnia. Well, it's at this point where Christian progressives fail most conspicuously, I think, in their stated objective, which is to demonstrate the love of Christ 
to their neighbor, an objective we all share. I share with Mr. Campolo. But progressives, I think, miss something important. Duke University's Stanley Harawas speaks for many progressives when he denies the need for a foreign policy that could thwart the depraved ambitions of terrorist groups or rogue regimes. Listen to Mr. Harawas. My only response is I do not have a foreign policy. I have something better, a church constituted by people who would rather die than kill. Well, what are we to make of this theology of love, as they call it, the theology of love? The practical pacifism of progressive Christianity presents us, it seems to me, with a conscience insulated from human suffering. It is a so-called Christian conscience that acts as if we live in a world with no wolves. It is a conscience content to ignore the neighbor in crisis, whether he's the Jew at Auschwitz, the Tutsi villagers hacked to death in Rwanda, the girls forced into sexual slavery by Boko Haram, the Christians and Yazidis hunted down and executed by ISIS, or the Syrian refugees facing starvation or extinction because of their faith. Well, the martial outlook proclaimed by Lewis is a rebuke. It is a rebuke to an old temptation. The temptation to allow the hatred of war, which is a good, a good emotion to have, allowing the hatred of war to blot out all other virtues and obligations. For the person whose life is threatened by violence, servitude, or death, the heroic tradition summons a full range of human obligations, empathy, courage, sacrifice, and a determination to protect the neighbor from great evil. Christians have long appreciated the distinct role of the state, not the church, the state, in helping to carry out the last of these obligations, protecting the neighbor from great evil. In other words, the idea of the just war. If peace is made the supreme goal, if it consumes all other obligations, it becomes what? It becomes an idol. An idol. And we know what God thinks about idols. But the historic and orthodox Christian church has never viewed peace, peace at any cost, as the highest good. Such a peace always, always ends in a preference for tyranny it always adds to the catalog of human suffering. Writing in the 1940s, in the midst of the Second World War, C.S. Lewis said this, we now know that a terrified and angry pacifism is one of the roads that leads to war. Think Munich, 1938. Well, Lewis insists that both the Old and New Testament, Old and New Testament, take the justice of God as well as the mercy of God seriously. For Lewis, the biblical answer to the problem of evil in human history, Christ's death and resurrection, cannot separate justice from mercy. Here is the moral and the theological core, I think, of the heroic tradition. For C.S. Lewis, the way of Jesus what he once described as terror and comfort intertwined, rejects sentimental Christianity. It rejects militarism, yes, as surely as it does pacifism. From Lewis's fiction as well as his prose, we learn that the gentleness of Jesus 
was not the full and final revelation of the character of God. Aslan is good, but he's not safe. Do you eat girls? Asked Jill. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. The heroic tradition for Lewis was tempered by his own personal experience of the horrors and the deprivations of war. It was framed by his deeply biblical view of the human predicament, the problem of radical evil. To uphold this tradition in our culture, in our politics, in our theology, is to take a road less traveled right now. And yet, and yet, along this road lies our best hope, not for the immediate arrival of the kingdom of heaven, but for a greater measure of peace and justice within and among the nations of the earth. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. LeConte, and thank you for traveling with me on the Lewis Festival Scholar Series today. The second talk in the series, Lewis and War, will be delivered by Dr. David Downing, co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College. The title of David's talk is C.S. Lewis, Neither Patriot Nor Pacifist, But Patient, and it will be automatically downloaded to your pod in the coming week. Please know the 2022 C.S. Lewis Festival, our 20th season, kicks off Friday, September 16th at the Great Lakes Center for the Arts in Petoskey and Bay Harbor, Michigan, with best-selling author, blogger, and memorist Anne Voskamp. Anne is the author of multiple books, including the New York Times bestseller, 1,000 Gifts, A Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are. For more information, please go to our website, cslewisfestival.org. This entire podcast has been made possible by the C.S. Lewis Festival and its generous sponsors. Thanks to podcast producer Zach Smith of Hands Media. On behalf of the C.S. Lewis Festival, I'm David Krause.